The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we come before you first of all with thankful hearts because it is such a blessing to be fed your word. We praise you for your word. We praise you for preserving it and we praise you for the opportunity to contemplate it this morning. I pray that you would help me exposit your word well, that you would help me explain it well and illustrate it well and apply it well. I pray, Father, that you would help each of us to listen to it well, that you would bless us with understanding and that you would cause us to truly be transformed by your word this morning. I pray, Father, for two things most of all. I pray that you would cause us to see how we can be missional ourselves what it looks like practically for us to participate in this work of mission. And I also pray, Father, that you would give us the same motivation for mission that Jesus had. That you would fill each of our hearts with the same kind of compassion for the lost in our lives and the lost around the world that your Son has. Cause us to see them as he sees them and to be rightly moved to them in compassion. Show us how to do the work of mission and show us why to do the work of mission, I pray. Give us the same motive that Jesus had. This is only possible by your spirit. We know that we can't do this ourselves and so we're asking you right now, Father, to make us better laborers in your harvest field. Do this for your glory and out of your love for all of those that will impact. It's in your name we pray, amen. One hundred seventy-three thousand four hundred and fifty-one, according to Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the International Mission Board, that is the number of people who will die today without knowing Christ. One hundred seventy-three thousand four hundred fifty-one people today. Before this day is over, they will enter into eternity without Jesus. They will start to experience the wrath of God. Awful suffering that will last for eternity. Today will be the first day for them. The first day. 173,451 people today. Real people, people just like you and me, people that have families, people that have friends, people that have hopes and dreams. There are about 8 billion people in the world today. According to the International Mission Board, quote, 59% is considered unreached, meaning Jesus is largely unknown among 4.6 billion people. Largely unknown. Billions of people in the world don't even know the hope of the gospel. Is it not over, overwhelming to you? How should we react to that? Well, I'll tell you what, how we're supposed to react. We're supposed to do something about it. We're not supposed to just sit here. We're not supposed to let our hearts break for them. 
We're supposed to take action. Over the past several weeks now, we've been looking at a number of areas of obedience that we're called to as followers of Jesus. We've been called to eat his word. We've been called to pray. We've been called to praise God together as a body. We've been called to serve one another. We've been called to grow the body. And today we're going to hear the call to go. If we do all of those things, but it all just stays in here, it all stays inside our church or inside our homes, if our Christianity is it's just a private, personal, communal thing, there's something terribly wrong. In fact, I would say we're not even doing those things right if it's all just in here. We're coming, we're doing our little Bible studies, we're, we're praying, we're worshiping, we're serving each other, but it's all, it's all in here. That is not Christianity. That is not following Jesus. The sermon, title of the sermon today is Jesus Followers Go. And by go, I'm referring to going out into the world. Going out into the world with the gospel. This would include evangelism, sharing the gospel. Within this imperative, we could also include outreach, which is more focused on meeting needs. But the sermon today is going to focus on, on evangelism, bringing the good news to the lost. You see, saving the world is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not optional. Jesus followers go. Why? Here's your main point today. Here's the main point of the sermon. The world needs Jesus. And it needs him through you. The world needs Jesus and it needs him through you. This morning we're going to see how Jesus followers go. And we're going to see why Jesus followers go. And we're going to see that by actually looking at Jesus himself. He is our example. He's our master. We're his disciples. And because he was missional, we must be missional too. So we're going to look first at Jesus' mission, what he did. And we'll look second at Jesus' motive, why he did it. So two points, Jesus' mission and Jesus' motive. Let's start with Jesus' mission. You can turn your attention to verse 35. You see, Jesus was on a mission to save the world. And one of the reasons why you need to understand his mission is because his mission is also your mission. If you follow him, this is your mission too. What did Jesus' mission look like? Well, Matthew tells us, Matthew is a former tax collector, one of the bad guys of Jesus' day, who actually became a follower of Jesus himself. And he's writing this book somewhere around 60, 80 AD. Jesus died 30, 33 AD, so it's within a few decades after the events of Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection. Matthew's writing, he's putting together this account, this biography of Jesus, if you will. And many people would say that Matthew's gospel is, it's the most Jewish of the gospels. Jesus is portrayed as the Jewish Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He's the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel. And it's a very carefully structured book. Matthew starts off with, with the, 
with the Christmas story, which you know well, where Jesus is born as the promised king from David's line. That's uh, chapters one through two. And then in chapter three, you have John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, and he's preaching this, Matthew three, verse two. Repent, for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Now in Matthew's gospel, he alternates between story and speech. Story and speech. Story and speech. And in chapter 4, Jesus starts his mission work. And what do we see him doing? He's preaching the same kind of message as John the Baptist. Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, is the same thing as the kingdom of God. This was a a central theme in Jesus' preaching. Uh, Throughout his ministry, he taught that the kingdom of heaven had come, and he was also teaching that the kingdom of heaven was coming. It had come, and it was coming. This is God's end-time restorative reign. It's his rule as king over his people. And Jesus was announcing that it was imminent. God was having his way with the world at long last. You can kind of think of God's kingship, his saving kingship, like a giant iceberg underneath the sea. And the prophets long before Jesus, they had looked down through the water. They had seen this massive, beautiful iceberg down there. But it was still, it was still below the surface. Jesus comes on the scene, and that iceberg of God's reign breaks through the water. It breaks the surface of the sea. His restorative rule breaks into the present age, this massive, beautiful iceberg. It emerges from the ocean. It enters our reality. But it wasn't fully out of the water yet. That won't happen until Jesus comes again. So there's a sense in which it's come, but another sense in which it's, it's still coming. This was an essential part of Jesus' message. Matthew, in Matthew 4.23, he gives us a kind of a concise summary of Jesus' mission work. He says in Matthew 4.23, that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what's he doing? He's teaching, he's proclaiming, and he's healing. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. That's what his mission work looked like in a nutshell. He's teaching in their synagogues as where Jews gathered for prayer, for Bible reading. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. So the gospel of the kingdom is the good news of God's kingship, the news that as restorative reign had come and was coming, that this iceberg was about to fully emerge. And in fact, it even now had already come out of the water. It already entered our reality. And he's also healing every disease and every affliction, Matthew says. That's incredible. Every disease Every affliction, he's healing. The miracles that Jesus performed, they not only validated him as a messenger from God and validated his message as being from God, but they were also manifestations of of God's kingship themselves. They were part of the tip of the iceberg, you could say. I think as one person put it, "This this is what it looks like when God takes charge. His saving kingship has come. Jesus' ministry, pictured in Matthew 4, is followed by the first major speech in Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount, which discusses life in the kingdom. That's Matthew 
5 through 7. And then after that, Matthew alternates back to story again. You know, you have that story, speech, story, speech pattern. And in Matthew chapter 8 through 9, what you see is all of Jesus' kingdom works. He heals a leper, he heals a paralyzed man, he heals sick people, he heals blind people. He raises a girl from the dead, he casts out demons. And then we arrive at our verse today in Matthew 9, Matthew 9, 35. And Matthew takes a minute to summarize Jesus' mission work a second time, and he does it in a very similar way as he did the first time. Matthew 9, verse 35, you can look with me. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. That means he went to the bigger places and the smaller places. He went to the more important places and he went to the less important places. All throughout the region of Galilee. It's covering a lot of ground. And these, the second summary statement, it kind of works together with the first one. It's like a, as bookends, if you will. It, it bookends this section in Matthew's biography on Jesus' mission. That this is, we see him teaching and healing in Matthew 4 through 9. That this is, this is his mission work. Why is that significant for you? Because it's one commentator, but this passage is kind of like a door. It opens up from one room. It closes one room and it opens up to another room. On the one hand, verse 35 serves to summarize Jesus' mission work. And on another hand, this passage, along with the verses that follow it, it leads into the work of the disciples, which is the next section. See, Jesus, he's about to talk about the need for more workers. He's going to do that in verses 37 through 38, as we'll see. And then in chapter 10, he calls his 12 disciples to himself. He gives them authority to work miracles. And then he sends them out to go do the same kind of work. We go to our second major speech in Matthew. Matthew 10, Jesus says in verse six to his disciples now, he says, go, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. He tells his disciples now to go. Go spread the good news about God's kingship demonstrate it through miracles. You say, wow, that sounds just like what Jesus was doing. That's the point. It's exactly what Jesus was doing. His mission mirrors their mission. They will now go as he went. Jesus' work of saving the world, it's now carried on through them. His mission of saving the world from sin from suffering, from guilt, from death. It's carried on now through them. The world is going to receive his salvation through his followers. What you need to understand is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you've got to be about saving the world too. Not everyone's going to go in a, in a formal way like the 12 disciples did. But what that said especially in light of the second point, which we're going to see here in a minute, I think everybody should seriously consider going in a formal way, going into full-time ministry here in the States, or going overseas to serve as a missionary. I think you should consider going like that. 
And you should periodically ask yourself, might I be willing and able to serve like this? And if the answer is maybe, then come talk with one of us. Come talk with one of the pastors. We need more people going in the formal way like the disciples went. We need more people going into ministry. We need more people going overseas to reach the nations. Ask yourself periodically, might I be willing to do that? Might I be able to do that? Come talk with us. Even if you don't know the answer is yes, come talk with us if it's a, if it's a maybe for you. That said, though, obviously the majority of us, we will not be going like that. As a follower of Christ, though, you will be missional as he is missional. Saving the world must be your concern too. So practically, how would it look to be missional? If you're not going into full-time ministry, what would it look like for you to be about saving the world? Two ways. You can support others who go. We do that by praying for them and their efforts. We do that by giving financially so that they can go in a full-time way. So you can support others. And you can also try to reach the lost yourself in whatever ways you can. I'm going to repeat that again. You want to be missional like Jesus? You can support others who go. And you can try to reach the lost yourself. Simple enough, right? The question for us is, do you have a good idea of how to actually do that? The support part's a little bit easier, right? It's, well, easy in terms of easy to understand, not necessarily easy to do. When it comes to, to supporting financially, when you give to the church, that supports our own, local, uh, our, our own local efforts in the work of mission, and a percentage of that also goes to support uh, the work of international missions. Um, and obviously, when you pray, uh, when, when you pray for the requests that we send out through the Echo app, or you come to our prayer meetings, or when you pray for the lost just in your own life, um, that's all ways that you're also supporting the, uh, the, the work of mission. Again, easy to understand. Yes, I can pray for the work of missions um, on my own and, and with the church. Yes, I can give uh, for the work of, of mission locally and globally. Um, harder to actually do that faithfully, to do that sacrificially and generously, right? But easy enough to understand. What about trying to reach the gospel? What, what about trying to reach people with the gospel yourself? How can you do that well? Obviously, living a transformed life is a big part of it. And that's usually one of the first things that comes to our mind, in part because it's easier to, to uh, uh, draw attention to our, our, our testimony than to actually open our mouths and, and, and try to talk with people about the gospel. Um, but it is true. Truly loving others and serving others demonstrates the power of Jesus. But I think we all know that somebody is not going to come to understand the good news just by looking at your life, right? We actually have to use our words, now, in thinking about how we can actually do this well today, how can we reach the lost with the gospel well today, I want to spend a few minutes explaining what I don't think we should do, what I don't think is best. And in talking about that, I think it'll maybe clarify for you what we need to be doing, what we should be doing instead. Um, I also want to talk about this because it'll be a correction of sorts to to uh, a way of doing evangelism that I've modeled in the past and may have even taught to in the past. 
that I now don't think is, is, uh, is, necessarily, is necessarily wise or the best. What do I mean? Well, what is the gospel? When you think of the gospel, what do you think of? Maybe a helpful acronym comes to your mind that others have come up with, like GMCR, right? God, man, Christ, response. God is holy. Man is sinful. Christ died and rose again. Respond by repenting and believe. And maybe for you, when you think sharing the gospel, you think, I need to get that message across to somebody somehow in a conversation with them. I need to, I need to get that down into a, into a little soundbite, something under five minutes. I've got to insert that into what would otherwise be a normal conversation. That's what you don't have to do. I'm going to take a minute to explain why I don't think that should be your top priority. If you want to reach the lost in your life with the gospel, that should not be your top priority. There will be a time and a place for quick gospel presentations like that. I don't think it's helpful, though, to make that our primary goal. Why is that? Our mission is to save the world. In order for people to be saved, they need to understand the gospel and believe the gospel. That's our goal, right? We want to help people understand the message and we want to help them believe the message. That is not the same goal as simply stating the message. There's a difference between those. We used to go out to the farmer's market quite a bit, the one right across the street. And uh, while we were out there, we got to get a soundbite like that across to quite a few people. Uh, we were out there most weekends, and especially towards the end, you know, we'd state that message, maybe on average to a few people each time. On a good day, maybe five to ten people we'd be able to, to get that across. We typically invite them over, you know, with water or a donut or something. We ask them how we can pray for them, maybe ask them a few questions. And then we try to, quote unquote, share the gospel, right? Get that, get that across to them. I'm inclined to say that, you know, if I remember correctly, there really wasn't much apologetic work done beforehand. Um, if any apologetic work done beforehand, we, you know, b- b- before uh, stating the message. And oftentimes it was like, you know, just trying to get this message across to them while they're there. You know, just trying to get it out while they're there so they can hear it. But that's our job, right? That's our job. We're just supposed to be faithful messengers. Get, just get it across. If we say all the right parts, we can check the box and we've, we've done our duty. We've tried to reach the lost with the gospel and the rest is in God's hands, right? Now I know that um, when I was doing this and for those of you who participated too, obviously we were well-intentioned and, and God can uh, do something from that. I'm not, I'm not saying that he can't. But when we step back and evaluate, what was, the, what was the fruit of trying to reach the lost like that? How much fruit do we see come from that? We had one person come to church for a little while, but uh, she, she ended up not staying. And uh, she was already a professing Christian anyway, perhaps. And we had one opportunity to have a follow-up conversation with somebody who was a Catholic, but she may have actually been a genuine believer herself. Uh, and one other person we had a little bit more contact with. Aside from that, there wasn't really much, really much to show for, for our efforts. Now you might be thinking, oh, <laughs> come on, you, you, you know better than that, Pastor. It's not about the fruit, it's about the faithfulness, Right? It's not about the fruit, it's about the faithfulness. And you don't know how many people may have been impacted by that, right? And that's true, I don't. 
And I really hope that it had a greater impact than, than what I could see. Um, what I did see was uh, not only nobody repenting and believing, obviously, but very few opportunities to even talk with people again after that. Um, obviously, our faithfulness, it does glorify God, uh, but that doesn't mean that fruit doesn't matter. And if there's no fruit, maybe there's a reason for it, right? I do think there's a reason for it. If we want to help people understand the gospel and believe the gospel, then simply stating a soundbite isn't going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. I think there's a few reasons why that's the case. One is because even if we get that soundbite across, you just think about that for a second, GMCR, God, man, Christ response. That soundbite, they might not even understand even if you do get it across to them. Each of those points of the gospel, who God is, who Jesus is, what it means to repent, what it means to believe, what it means that God is holy, what's the significance of his death, what's the significance of his resurrection. There's a lot of explaining that needs to be done there. And there's a very high chance that there's going to be a gap between your understanding of these things and their understanding of these things if you're sharing it in a soundbite fashion. I remember there was uh, one atheist agnostic student that I met through the Public Theology Show last year and I had been meeting with him for, for some time. We had been getting together for Bible studies. We had a number of apologetic dialogues. And we may have even known each other at this point for close to a year. I'm not sure. But I remember uh, having, having lunch with him one day and, uh, and him saying something about, about God or the Christian God having a physical body. And it was just like, wow, we've had, we've had multiple conversations that was probably addressed at some point. But even here, at least in that moment, he seemed confused. We're talking about God. He has, a, he has a different conception in his mind than the conception that I have in mine. Right? And that was after having had multiple opportunities to, uh, to talk with him about things. Each of those parts of the message require a lot of explanation. We cannot assume that people understand what we mean when we talk about God, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about sin, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about repentance and faith. But even if we do grant their understanding of those things, just think about that soundbite for a second. Is that really the best summary of the gospel message? It's not a bad summary, but I think when we look at what the Bible teaches about the good news, we might find that even that soundbite is deficient in some ways. Just look at our passage from today. Look at verse 35. What was Jesus proclaiming? He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom. That's interesting. How, how often do we talk about this idea of the kingdom of God when we share the gospel with people? Maybe that's an important part of the gospel message. This idea of God's end time restorative kingship. This kingdom which has broken the surface of the water in Jesus, and will fully emerge in the future with God's perfect rule over his people. That's going to be tough to explain in a soundbite, right? The gospel, I think, is thicker than sometimes we make it out to be. What's my point? Even if the soundbite is understood, which is doubtful, it might not even communicate the message as fully as we want it to. Effective evangelism is going to take time. We're not going to be able to help people understand the gospel with a 
five-minute insertion of a brief gospel presentation in the middle of a normal conversation, right? Don't think that that should be top priority for us. I was just talking about the, uh, the good news with a different atheist student recently. Maybe even my second time talking with him about it. And he said something like, it's just, it's just so much, or it's a lot. God, Jesus, and for me, it's like, it's, it's super clear in my mind. It's, it's super simple. But that's not the case for people who have either never heard it, or maybe this is the first time or the second time or the third time they've heard it. Maybe especially so when you consider the fact that there's a spiritual component to their blindness too, right? If we want people to understand the gospel, the soundbite's not going to be enough. If we want people to believe the gospel, the soundbite is also not going to be enough, right? Even if they do understand the message that we're sharing, it's not like our formulation of the message is magical. It doesn't have the superpower to change their minds automatically when they hear it. That hasn't been my experience, at least, <laughs> anyway. Even when you do get that across, it's not like, you know, it's not like they just accept it. Um, now, of course, again, I, I, I do want to say that God can use even a simple gospel presentation, even a thin gospel message to save somebody, but I don't think that that's the normal way he does it. The good news is a message. And just like any message, we're not going to believe the message if it doesn't if it doesn't jive with what we already think is true. <laughs> I remember William Lane Craig giving, a, giving an example that I'm sure I've shared uh, before about how if you're on the street and, and a Muslim comes up to you and he shares the main message of Islam with you. Even if you understand his message, you're not going to just accept it, right? Because it doesn't align with what, you, with what you think is true. In order for that message to become believable to you, your opposing beliefs are going to have to be dealt with somehow. And that's why, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 15, he says, quote, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the job of apologetics. That's where we come in. We try and use reason to help people see the truth clearly. So I've talked a lot about what to not do. <laughs> Our goal is not just to state the message. It's not to insert a soundbite into a conversation. Our goal is to help people understand the good news and believe the good news. That's what we got to do if we want to see the lost saved. Maybe you say, oh, good, I'm glad, because, you know, it's usually very awkward and unnatural when I try and, you know, insert a gospel presentation like that into a conversation. And you know what? You're probably right. It is. Maybe that's another reason why it's not very effective. What should we do then? What should we do instead? How can we reach people with the gospel well? Well, there's no shortcuts. I don't have a formula for you. <laughs> um, it's a long game. We have to play the long game. What I want to do is, is to encourage you to think not in terms of sound bites, but in terms of steps. Don't think sound bites, think steps. And by that I mean everybody's in a different place spiritually. You want to meet them where they're at spiritually. And then to steal the Vine Project's language, you want to help them take one step to the right. One step closer to Jesus. Walk with them one step at a time. It might take more than one conversation. You see, all right, 
Here they are now. They're right here. Jesus is over there. And in order for them to understand and to believe in Jesus, there's all of these intellectual and spiritual steps that need to be taken. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about this person, where they're at. I'm just going to ask myself, what is the next best step for them? What's the next best step for them? And I'm just going to help them take one more step closer to Christ, another step closer to Christ, another step closer to Christ, and keep moving in that direction. Get to there. Do they believe that God exists? If not, that's a good place to start. If they do, maybe the next step is to overcome objections that they have. Maybe they have objections to biblical sexuality. Move them one step closer to Jesus. Maybe it's seeing how the gospel satisfies their felt needs. Or maybe it's addressing the problem of suffering and evil in the world. You don't have to do all this yourself, by the way. You can maybe share a book with them, share some videos with them. Maybe the next best step for them is helping them understand what Jesus has done for you. Sharing your testimony. Talking about how he's changed you. Maybe it's giving them a chance to read some of the stories of Jesus for themselves. Inviting them to do a Bible study with you. That's a wonderful way to help them come to understand the gospel in the fuller, thicker sense in which we want them to. Get them into God's word. All of these are great steps to take if we want to help people move from where they are closer to Jesus. Think in steps instead of sound bites. If you say, well, I just don't even know where to get started with people, don't overthink it, don't overcomplicate it. One simple way to get started is just by talking with people about deeper things. You can talk about anything, really. You can, anything deep. Talking about you know, life, purpose, what they're living for, what they're about what they're struggling with. Talk about religion. Talk about a moral issue. Talk about marriage. Talk about raising children. Anything beyond the superficial. Just start talking about deeper things. Don't even be worried if you don't, quote unquote, make progress (laughs) in the first conversation. Just start talking with them. Try to understand what they believe. Try to understand why they believe it. Just those two questions in of themselves will get you a long ways. (laughs) What do you believe? Why do you believe that? Being genuinely curious Really taking an interest in them, taking an interest in what they think, asking a lot of questions, trying to understand. Deep conversations provide a lot of fertile ground for talking about God, talking about Jesus, finding out where they are spiritually, and helping you figure out what the next best step is for them. Just start talking about deeper things, spiritual things even. If you want to get better at this, uh, you know, this is what we do all the time at San Jose State, an easy way to get more comfortable having deep discussions or see how to have deep discussions like this, it's just come out with us. You can even try to have discussions with students yourself or, or if you want to just come just to listen to kind of get a feel for, for how to talk about things. Um, you're more than welcome to do that too. Uh, that's a great opportunity though to, to get better at just about having deeper dialogues with people. Um, the more you hear others do it, the more you do it yourself, the better you'll get at it. And you might even find, man, it's really wonderful to actually talk about Talk about important things with people. It's like talk about things that, that really matter. It's a wonderful, a wonderful privilege that we have. So Jesus' mission work, teaching, proclaiming, healing, and his mission is carried on through his disciples. The world receives his salvation through them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be missional too. 
Consider going into full-time ministry. I'm not, I'm not just saying that like in, a, you know, um, in, in an offhanded way. Seriously, consider it. But even if not, saving the world is still your concern. Support others who go. Pray for them. Give financially. And try to reach the lost yourself in whatever ways you can. Think steps over sound bites. How can I help them take one step closer to Jesus? One step closer to him. You don't even have to leave your house to do that, by the way. (laughs) By going, I'm not talking about going physically. I'm talking about reaching the lost with the gospel. You don't have to come out to San Jose State or, or, or physically leave your home in order to have meaningful conversations with people about things that need to be discussed with them in order for them to move closer and closer to Jesus. So in addition to providing a snapshot of Jesus' mission here, Matthew provides us with one of Jesus' motives for mission work. And this is such an amazing part of the passage. We're going to turn our attention to it next. What is the engine behind Jesus' restless, tireless devotion to the work of mission? Point number two, Jesus' motive. You can look at verse 36. It says, Matthew says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, if you look up the word compassion, the Greek word for compassion used here in the dictionary, you'll find that it comes, that it literally refers to inward body parts, especially your entrails, like your intestines. Back then, your your innards, they were kind of used in a similar way that that we talk about our heart today. They were used in a, in a psychological way. So you might say, for example, you know, he really has a heart for the lost. Or my heart is moved for, for this person right now, given what they're suffering, given what they're going through. Back then it was your innards. It was your innards that you would talk about like that. And the idea here is, is basically that as, uh, as, as the dictionary would put it, quote, it's this idea of having pity or feeling sympathy. Compassion is what you feel when an ad pops up on YouTube and you see the, the face of, of children that have clefts. Have you ever seen those, those ads? You know what I'm talking about? And you see that, that precious child's face and it's, and it's disfigured and that, that grabs something inside you, that, that moves you towards them somehow, Right? Or maybe when, when, when you see a, an ad for a children's hospital and you see the video of the, of, the, of the children that have cancer and their head is shaved or maybe they, they have a deformity of some kind and that, that just rips on your, on your heartstrings. That's compassion. Feeling pity, feeling sympathy for someone in need. What aroused Jesus' compassion for the crowds? It says in verse 36, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd was a Old Testament analogy for a lacking good leaders. The rulers of God's people, they were considered shepherds. They were compared to shepherds. Before Moses died in Numbers 27, he asked God to appoint a leader over Israel. That leader would be Joshua. 
and he said in Numbers 27, verse 18, he asked uh, that God would do this so that the, that the people would not be, quote, as sheep that have no shepherd. First King chapter 22, Micaiah prophesies that the wicked King Ahab will die on the battlefield and says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. God condemns the shepherds of Israel, the rulers of Israel, in Ezekiel 34, when he tells Ezekiel, quote, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. The shepherds of Israel had failed God's people. They were focused on themselves. They neglected to care for the needy, and they were actually a source of harm for the flock. Zechariah also describes the shepherdless state in terms of lacking good spiritual leadership. He talks about the false gods. He says the household gods under nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. And he says, therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. They lacked good spiritual leadership. So when Jesus in Matthew 9 looks out at the crowds and his heart goes out to them. Or as one person said, he has this gut level feeling for them. It's because they, the crowds, are like sheep without a shepherd. In light of the Old Testament, we understand that to mean that they lacked good leaders. In Jesus' day, we know that they lacked leaders who could guide them well spiritually in faithfulness to God. In fact, sometimes the religious leaders even weigh the people down with heavy burdens. The crowds of Jesus' day lack leaders who can meet the needs of the needy, who rightly cared for the poor, for the sick, for the oppressed. And the leaders of Jesus' day were unable to deliver God's people from their enemies, from their oppressors. They truly lacked good leaders. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And just like sheep without a shepherd can be bullied by predators or even by bad shepherds, and just like sheep without a shepherd are in absolutely no position to help themselves, so too are the crowds that Jesus looks out and sees. They are harassed and helpless. Cannot the same be said of our world today? The masses might not be harassed and helpless in the exact same way that the lost sheep of Israel were, but they are still harassed and helpless. And they are still just as much without a good shepherd. I want you to just think about the people in your life for a second, or the people here in this mission field that God's put us in, Silicon Valley. Do they have good spiritual guidance? No. Are they being led in the truth? No. Are they taught how to live life the way God intended? No. Are they given any real hope in the face of suffering? No. Is there anyone who can heal their broken body? No. Is there anyone to protect them from Satan 
and demons? No. Is there anyone who can liberate them from their slavery to sin? No. Is there anyone who can deliver them from death? No. Is there anyone who can save them from God's judgment? No. And are they able to do anything about this? Are they able to help themselves? No. They are helpless. When you look out at the world today, what do you see? We see lots and lots and lots of people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you want the same heart for the loss that Jesus had? In order to have the same heart of Jesus, you have to have the same eyes of Jesus. You have to turn and face the crowds. You have to see their need. Why do you think our hearts are so cold at times? Why do we have so little compassion? I think part of the reason is that we turn our attention away from the world. We look away. 173,451 people. That is overwhelming. We can't handle that. We turn away. Turn our face. Or sometimes our attention is just drawn away by something else, right? We get distracted by the things of this life. We forget that we're on a mission, that we're here to save the world. The reality that there are billions of people out there who are dying and going to hell, that just kind of fades into the background. And we get all caught up with our career or our home or our hobbies or our retirement dreams or our busy personal lives. Sometimes we get caught up in religion of all things. Especially in reform circles, we spend a lot of time reading books and listening to podcasts and watching sermons on YouTube maybe taking stands on theological issues, getting into debates on social media. Not that theology isn't important, but you weren't saved to study theology. We're supposed to be about saving the world. Herschel H. Hobbs, who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 1961 to 1963, he gave this example. I don't know, maybe he got this from someone else too. He said, suppose you were on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. Suddenly, on one side of the boat are hundreds of people in small boats that are sinking. The people cry out for help. If they're not rescued soon, they will drown. What should you do? And you hear the captain of the ship announce over the speaker system, folks, look to the other side of the boat so you won't see those people. Put your fingers in your ears and you won't hear them. Oh, they need help. But after all, this is, a, this is a pleasure cruise, not a rescue mission. We're too busy having fun. Oh, yes, you can, you can say a little prayer for them as we pass by. What do you think of that? Criminal, yes, he says. But no more so than when we ignore the cry for help by people all about us who are being swallowed up in an ocean of evil. Too many believers are too busy to help rescue the perishing. They are too busy enjoying their, of all things, religion, 
he says. Wow. Don't go to the other side of the boat. Don't turn away from the people who are sinking and drowning. Don't let them leave your mind. 173,451 people every day, every day. Fight hard to keep your eyes fixed on their need. See what Jesus sees. When you look at people, see harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. In verse 36, Matthew says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe Matthew wants us to think here about the world's need for the good shepherd that God promised. God promised that he would remove the bad shepherds of Israel back in Ezekiel 34. In that context, it was the monarchy. And that he himself, the owner of the flock, would actually shepherd the people himself. And he also promised, in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, he said, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Who is this good shepherd that God promised? It's Jesus, of course. He's the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. He is the promised servant, David. He is the king, the good shepherd that every harassed and every helpless sheep needs. The world needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus desperately. Desperately. And here you have this moving sight in Matthew 9 where the, where the crowds are coming out to him. They see him. They see him as someone who can, who can help them. They want help, and there's Jesus. He can help. They're flocking to him. And it's upon seeing their great need. It's upon having this gut-level reaction of compassion that we get to verse 37 where Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Harvest imagery in the Bible is end times imagery. It's interesting, it's normally an image of God's judgment, but that's not the case here. Here it's an image of God's mission. Some people think the harvest symbolizes people who are spiritually ripe. They're ready to be saved. It might, it might also just symbolize the huge task of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. And that task needs to be accomplished. Either way, time is limited. It's limited because God's kingdom has come and is coming. I used my grandma's apple tree in a, in a recent sermon, but I'm going to use it again here. Uh, in a different way. We don't have a lot of agricultural examples that are readily accessible to us. But you all know her apple tree because uh, you get a lot of the apples from her tree. It produces a lot of apples. And they had a plentiful harvest this year. Lots and lots of bags of apples that have come to, come to the church recently. When all the apples got ripe, what would have happened if they just left them on the tree? They would fall to the ground, and rot. 
if they didn't harvest them in time, the apples would be lost. Now, in their case, my grandma and grandpa, they were able to pick the apples uh, themselves without much help. But when Jesus looks out on the masses that are harassed and helpless, it's a different situation. There are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of apples on the tree and only a few people to pick them. There's so much work to be done, but so few people to do it. And time is limited. Time is of the essence. If the apples aren't harvested, they're going to fall, they're going to rot, and they're going to die. The harvest will be lost, which is a tragedy. What does that mean? It means we need more workers, and we need them now. We need more workers, and we need them now. When it comes to the work of mission, the task is huge, the workers are few, and the time is short. It's an urgent situation. And so what does Jesus say? He says, go the Lord of the harvest. Like one commentator put it, quote, God is the owner-manager of the farmland who employs farm workers to harvest the crop. Jesus says, go to the owner. Go to him. Have him send more farm workers into the field. That should be a regular prayer of yours if it's not. Pray for God, the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers into the field. Pray for him to raise up people for this work locally. Pray for him to raise them up globally to send them out to the nations. If you have compassion for the masses like Jesus, you will pray to the Lord of the harvest. You will ask him to send out workers. And if you have compassion, you should want to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer request. You'll support those who go, and you'll go out into the harvest field yourself. You'll help pick the apples yourself. You have the gospel. You go help save the world. Jesus' mission is carried on in us as his followers. And Jesus' motive should burn strong in our hearts as his followers. Jesus' followers go. Just as he went, we go. 173,451 people will die today without knowing Jesus. They will perish in the water. You have lots of family members. You have lots of friends. You have lots of neighbors. You have lots of coworkers who are in the ocean with them right now and they're sinking. One day they will be part of that number if nothing changes. The world needs Jesus and it needs him through you. Will you go? Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we would go. Help us to pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to raise up more workers and help us be an answer to that prayer ourselves. Fill us with the same kind of compassion that Jesus had for the lost. Give us his eyes so that we can have his heart. Help us see the lost in our lives and the lost in this place as harassed and helpless as they are as sheep in need of the good shepherd, Jesus. Help us see the world's need for him. 
Help us recognize that your mission, Jesus, is carried on in us. Help us think about the loss in our life and what the next best step is for them, how we can help them move closer and closer to you, Jesus. I pray that you would be pleased to save many people through our efforts. Do this for your glory and do this out of your own compassion for all of the harassed and helpless in the world today. It's in your name we pray all these things, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.